Good morning, everybody. This morning's message is entitled The Temporary and the Permanent. The Temporary and the Permanent. The chances are good that you're sitting under a different kind of light today. Forbes magazine states, We've been living and working in artificial light for over 130 years, ever since Thomas Edison's first light bulb. But despite the progress that our well-lit society has made, we've paid a significant price, both environmentally and financially, for the move from incandescent to fluorescent and other forms of traditional lighting. There's been a recent revolution in the world of lighting, in fact. The ordinary incandescent bulb is headed to the museum. In fact, our federal government banned the sale of inefficient light bulbs, and we were due to be switched, pun intended, to newer types of lighting by 2012. It's all in a move to reduce energy consumption and reduce greenhouse gases, and we know how much debate that has engendered. Right now, 20% of the world's electricity is used for lighting, but it could be reduced to 4% by using LED lighting. And by 2030, LEDs will drive energy savings that's equivalent to 334 million barrels of oil per year, just in the United States alone. Thomas Edison's wonderful contribution, already moved over in favor of energy-conserving compact fluorescent bulbs, and even these are under pressure by the newest light technology, LEDs, or light-emitting diodes. Already these are popular in homes and caps and flashlights and tools, and certainly in our flat-screen televisions. I haven't even mentioned something that is even newer, OLEDs, an organic type of lighting. Changes everywhere, not only in the world of lighting. Our automobiles are built for flex fuel or run partially on electricity. Medical technology is mind-boggling. Space frontiers are conquered. Are we seeing the, re the relentless march of progress? Or are we seeing something else? My point is this. Everything that we know, everything we probably have taken for granted, all of the realities that we know of in life passing away, I hope it's not a shock, but that means everything, and it means even us. I want to read the Apostle John's conclusion to the whole enterprise that we call life. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the Apostle writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Let me repeat that last line for you again. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. John was in old age by the time he wrote his epistle, but he was not a senile individual. He was worn, it is true, from the passing of the years. In his early life, he had been something that most Newfoundlanders can identify with, but less and less with the passing of our times. 
John had been a commercial fisherman until the day Jesus changed his direction by calling him from a fishing boat into ministry. John would have been ambitious and energetic. In his lifetime, the world had changed so much. In the political realm, all of the leadership of every level he knew as a young man was gone. Pilate had been recalled by Rome and disgraced. Herod was dead. The priesthood was no more. Inside of his church, many of the Christians he knew in his apostolic past had been martyred, including his own brother. In the world in general, the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed in 70 AD. The nation had been broken into pieces. The people of Israel had been killed or scattered. None of his old realities survived. And all that John had left was the reality of following Jesus Christ. John had proven what we all will know in due time if we don't know it now. Life is never static. Everything has its day and then change hits with vengeance. Precious china and figurines crack with age. Wood develops cracks and begins to rot. Furniture becomes scratched and outdated and tossed onto the junk pile. Cars rust and break down and are towed away to their resting place. Our computers become obsolete almost when we touch the first keys. We need retraining in most jobs or risk being left behind. We know that political dynasties fade. John was right. Things pass away. Do you know one of the most pitiful things in the world? Someone who won't accept change gracefully. I can never suppress a smile when I used to see an older guy right here in Cornerbrook, perhaps in my own age bracket, in an equally aged Pontiac Firebird. I've watched him cruise through town with his long dyed hair blowing in the winds and his eyes shielded by his super cool Ray-Ban aviators. I wanted to stop him, confiscate his copy of Smokey and the Bandit. I wanted to yank his Jerry Reed tape out of the 8-track player, smash it on the sidewalk, smile at him, and say, welcome to the 21st century. Some of you this morning don't even know what I'm talking about because you live streamers and veteran downloaders are too young to remember 8-tracks or Burt Reynolds or Jackie Gleason. You don't know that Smokies were policemen. You thought they were sausages from the local grocery stores that taste great on the barbecue. In another area of life, I watch people of advancing age sweating at the gym on what I can only call instruments of torture. The stress of the clock punishes them for every extra pound they carry, and every muscle screams for relief as they sip bottled water. You know they'd kill you for a bottle of Coke and a greasy package of potato chips. Many of them look at you and their eyes say, oh, to be 20 again. There's something like an aging boxer. At 35, he faces someone who's 20 and hits the, cra hits the canvas and the crowd cheers for a new champion. And he just walks away from the ring. It only proves that you can't beat the clock. John was right. The world, our world and its desires pass away. The more time passes, the more something fails. Whether it's your health or your eyesight, or the stock market. We knew, who knew that sugar was as bad as we've made it recently? We spent most of our adult lives fighting fat. 
Turns out we were fighting a war with the wrong enemy. You see, change is inevitable and change is relentless, but don't despair. All of this change should send us on a quest for permanence. And today, at least, time is on your side. I want to challenge you today with a couple of simple but really important questions to see if you understand the difference between what is temporary and what is permanent. First question is this. How are you going to spend what you're worth? The value of a life is without measure. But the value of a soul brought Christ into the world to redeem us. The value created by life hinges on the values we carry into life or those we develop through our pathway. If John says everything passes away except what's done for the Lord, he'd be the best one to follow. Something in this world is going to consume you and your energy. You will give your life to something. Surprise Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan said, you've got to serve somebody. But will that service be meaningful and worthwhile in the end? Let me caution you not to pay attention to the misguided values of this world. I think it was Tony Campolo who said that somebody has deviously switched the price tags The things that should be expensive are labeled cheaply. The things that are really, really poor, things that are menial, often have high price tags. We need to allow God's Word and His Holy Spirit to tell us what's best, not some slick advertising company that's hawking the latest fad or some paid researcher who's hiding the truth for profit. I'm always amazed at how people view themselves. They satisfy their desires as they celebrate their birthdays and the milestones along their way. The body gets its way, all the same time the soul insists that eternity is most important. We seek to better ourselves through education and refinement and improvement, and that's fine. People seek to satisfy the physical, but too often sometimes totally neglect a spiritual part of them that lives on forever. There arrives a time when weakness overcomes us and we have to go. The hope our soul is filled with assurance and hope at that point. Don't ever neglect your spiritual dimension for it's the part of you that has greatest worth. If you're going to spend what you're worth, then spend yourself wisely. Invest in the eternal Christ. Ultimate question number two. Who will you choose as your companions on this journey? I've been in the company of people for whom I have absolutely no respect. At one time, I may have had respect for them, but I lost that respect when I began to see the core of their lives exposed. There are also places I could never be comfortable. There are topics that I cannot discuss without expressing strong opinions. I've sat with inmates and detainees during a time of chaplaincy and found people who were guilty of every type of disgusting crime and listened as they unfolded their deeds, or should I say their misdeeds. Jesus met a lot of people along the road of life. Many of them felt their lives placed under his microscope and they squirmed with discomfort as he looked upon them. 
But don't ever expect Jesus to just let you go, go your own way, to do your own thing. He made religious hypocrites squirm when he tested their values. He turned back the questions of the religious by asking them embarrassing questions about their own lives. He asked the woman at the well, in John chapter 4, a very difficult question. But in the end, he gave her hope. He made the high priest uncomfortable. Zacchaeus and Matthew became uncomfortable with ill-gotten gain in their work as tax collectors. He turned people to faith and they joined his company or they became fugitives from God and all of us will become one or the other. There are times when I don't know why I ended up on the path that I walk today. But I have to remember that all my life I've been surrounded by good and decent and God-fearing people. I've been blessed by Sunday school teachers and pastors and parents and mentors. But I also know that sin made a bid for my soul as it has for yours. The devil was always there to show me the allurements of life. And I realize today that Jesus has never asked me to drop out of society to dress in black and try to convince people that life was a bore for a Christian. We don't hang on to salvation like a life preserver and hope for a soon rapture to rescue us from this world. That may well happen and we need to be ready. But understand today that Jesus offers us good company. He tells me this world is passing away and that his ways alone are going to survive. So please don't be embarrassed to be numbered among those who call themselves Christians. Mark 8 and 38 proclaims this truth from the Lord himself. He says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. There's dust on the memory of those who opposed Christ. Few words, if any, are carved on their tombstones. While John said the world itself is not large enough to hold the books that could be written on the life of Jesus. That's quite a comparison. Brings me to ultimate question number three. What do you see as your greatest choice in life? Some people turn their careers into their God. Many make pleasure the highest good. Popular lyric a few years ago in a song screamed the modern philosophy if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. You should test that philosophy a little. Not a crime to be gifted. So if you have some natural skill and you can turn it into something, make sure it's something that builds your integrity here, but also builds your investment in eternity. Don't lose sight of the fact that your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend can't get you into heaven. And there's no credit card with a large enough credit limit to keep any of us from a casket if Christ tarries his coming. You have the choice of being able to maintain a clear conscience. You have a choice of having sweet assurance that no matter what happens in this life, your sins are forgiven and you're hidden and protected by the grace of God. John Newton's great old song says it well, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. 
You have the choice of turning your life around today and accepting the plan that God has for you. You have the freedom to start over, having learned from the past. Theodore Roosevelt said, The only man who never makes a mistake is the man who never does anything. Continue with the theme of lighting that I began with. Edison spent more than $100,000 to, to obtain 6,000 different specimens of fiber, but only three of them proved satisfactory as filament for his light bulbs. But each failure that Edison experienced brought him that much closer to the solution to his problem. And his friend Henry Ford was right when he said that failure was an opportunity to begin again more intelligently. You can begin again today if life has failed. And now ultimate question number four. Will your report card on life indicate a pass or a dreaded fail? We often don't look at life as something that is graded, but it is. We're all being tested as to the depth of our character, the nobility of our pursuits. Clarence Jordan was a man of unusual abilities and commitment. Jordan had two PhDs, one in agriculture and one in Greek and Hebrew. So gifted was this man that he could have chosen to do anything he wanted to do. But Clarence Jordan chose to serve the poor. In the 1940s, he founded a farm in America's Georgia and called it Koinonia Farm, the Greek word for fellowship. It was a community for poor whites and poor blacks. And as you might guess, such an idea did not go over well in the segregated world of the Deep South in the 1940s. Ironically, much of the resistance to Clarence Jordan's ideas came from good church people who followed the laws of segregation as much as the other folk in town. The townspeople tried everything to stop Clarence Jordan. They tried boycotting him, slashing workers' tires when they came to town. Over and over for 14 years, they tried different measures to shut him down. And finally, in 1954, the Ku Klux Klan had enough of Clarence Jordan, so they decided to get rid of him once and for all. They arrived one night to his farm in their white hoods with guns and torches and set fire to every building on Koinonia Farm, except for Clarence's home, which they riddled with bullets. They chased off all the families except one black family, which refused to leave. Clarence recognized the voices of many of the Klansmen. And as you might guess, some of them were good, decent church people. Another was the local newspaper's reporter. The next day, the reporter came out to see what remained of the farm. The rubble still smoldered and the land was scorched. But he found Clarence Jordan in the field, hoeing and planting. I heard the awful news, he called to Clarence, and I came out to do a story on the tragedy of your farm closing. Clarence just kept on hoeing and planting. Reporter kept prodding and kept poking, trying to get a rise from this quietly determined man who seemed to be planting instead of packing his bags. So finally, the reporter said in a haughty voice, Well, Dr. Jordan, 
you got two of them PhDs. You've put 14 years into this farm and there's nothing left of it at all. Just how successful do you think you've been? Clarence stopped hoeing. He turned towards the reporter with his penetrating blue eyes and said quietly but firmly, Boat as successful as the cross, sir. I don't think you understand us. What we are about is not success, but faithfulness. We're staying. Good day. Beginning that day, Clarence and his companions rebuilt Coenonia Farm, and the farm is going strong today, at least according to Tim Hansel in his book, Holy Sweat, from where I got this story. Mark Hatfield tells of, of touring Calcutta with Mother Teresa and visiting the so-called House of Dying. It was a place where sick children were cared for in their last days. He viewed the dispensary where the poor line up by the hundreds to receive medical attention. Watching Mother Teresa minister to these people, feeding and nursing those left behind to die, Hatfield was overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of the suffering she and her co-workers faced daily. They asked her, how can you bear this load without being crushed by it? Mother Teresa replied to his inquiry, my dear Senator, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. That I would suggest this morning is the passing grade for us all. Faithfulness in the midst of life's changes. When all that is temporary is gone, our jobs, our family, friends, teeth, hair, even our memories, and finally life itself, when all this is gone, God remains. My advice to you this morning is to get to know him. The light cast by his presence is permanent. The love he showers upon us is permanent. The eternal home he's prepared for us is permanent. Don't trade the power of the permanent for the uselessness of the temporary. May God bless you today.